Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, suicidal ideation, sexual assault, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 18-year-old Brenda Spicer tried to relax as she drove from Northern Louisiana University's campus to a nearby warehouse. She wasn't sure why she'd agreed to meet her best friend's ex, Ivan Bolden. Truthfully, she was afraid of him. She knew he didn't like her. She knew he blamed her for his breakup. Honestly, Ivan was the last man she wanted to see. But he told Brenda he had a present for his ex-girlfriend, Joelle, and wanted Brenda to give it to her. That seemed innocent enough. Brenda knew that Joelle loved gifts, she didn't want to deprive Joelle of a fun surprise, even if it came from Ivrin. This way, she'd get her gift without having to see him again. As she pulled into the drab warehouse, Brenda's nerves flew into overdrive. The place seemed deserted. She reached over and checked her glove compartment to make sure the handgun was still in there. For a moment, it calmed her. Then she heard footsteps. She looked up and saw Ivrin walking toward her. He seemed friendly, relaxed. He didn't look ready for a fight. Brenda breathed a sigh of relief and closed the glove compartment. She was being silly. She slid out of the driver's seat and hurried over to meet him. One errand and it would all be over. With any luck, Ivrin would soon be out of her life forever. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we'll meet college sweethearts Joelle Tillis and Ivan Bolden Jr. In the late 1980s, Joelle was a star athlete and Ivrin was one of the top students at Northeast Louisiana University. They seemed like a couple destined for success, but Ivrin's possessive, controlling tendency strained the relationship. When Joel started pushing Ivrin away, he searched for someone else to blame. He eventually found his target in Joel's best friend, 18-year-old Brenda Spicer. Next week, We'll discuss how Joelle and Ivrin's relationship fell apart. 
We'll also talk about the complicated legal issues that arose from the case and law enforcement's struggle to bring justice to those involved. Ivan Bolden Jr. was raised in an upper-middle-class family in Shreveport, Louisiana. Growing up, Ivan's parents expected him and his siblings to be high achievers, and Ivan didn't disappoint them. He had a fiercely competitive nature and always strove to succeed. While attending Fair Park High School in the early 80s, Ivan was an honor student, an American Legion Boys State Delegate, Student Council President, Vice President of the National Honor Society and Captain of the Varsity Basketball Team. His guidance counselor said, he was probably the most likable man that ever went through Fair Park. But although Ivan's ambition was impressive, his meticulous perfectionism may have been driven by unhealthy personality traits. Before I continue with Ivan's psychology, please note, that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Dr. Richard M. Reichman was a psychologist with the University of Maine who studied hypercompetitiveness in undergraduate students. In one study, Dr. Reichman and his co-authors found that hypercompetitive people often value power and control over others more than their peers. Their survey responses also demonstrated that they exhibited less care and respect for others. Dr. Reichman explained, the gist of this kind of competition is self-aggrandizement at the expense of others. This tendency was on full display when Ivan graduated in 1982. He was initially named salutatorian of the class his parents were upset that he hadn't earned the valedictorian spot, so they pressured the school to allow him to enroll in two summer school courses. By earning A's in both, he managed to raise his GPA to 3.353, graduating at the top of his class. The girl who was previously named as valedictorian lost her title. Ivan also secured a scholarship to Northeast Louisiana University that fall, where he enrolled in their pre-med program. He adapted well to college life. He was happy to get away from his parents, who he felt put too much pressure on him. Even without their prodding, he continued to be a high achiever. He seemed on track to accomplish every goal he set for himself, but academic success wasn't the only thing he cared about. In his second year at NLU, Ivan met a young woman named Joelle Tillis. Raised in Hammond, Louisiana, Joelle Tillis had a lot in common with Ivan Bolden Jr. Like him, she was highly competitive. As a child, she was the first black person to play for a boys' little league team. A natural athlete, she excelled most at basketball. She was recruited to play for Northeast Louisiana University's Division I women's basketball team in 1983. When Joelle and Ivan met on campus, they started out as friends, but he quickly won her affection by showering Joelle with gifts. He bought her a new computer, jewelry, even a new car. Joelle's sister later said, his allowance was awesome. At the beginning of the fall semester, he received enough money for the entire year. When he ran short, 
he'd just telephone home for more. Joelle wasn't used to so much wealth, and she was dazzled by it. <laughs> Joelle offered Ivren something he desperately craved as well, a loving family. After they started dating, she brought him home to her mother's house in Hammond for occasional weekend visits. Ivren was there for dinners, holidays, and birthdays. Joelle's family later said, he celebrated special occasions with the excitement of a kid, as if he was making up for what he had missed out on when he was younger. Ivren seemed to adopt Joelle's family as his own. In school documents, he even listed her mother as his emergency contact and next of kin. Joelle's family welcomed him into the fold. Since Joelle seemed happy, they ignored some of the red flags they saw in Ivren's behavior but his combative, hyper-competitive streak still stuck out to them. One cousin, Jolaine, said it was a challenge to play a friendly game of cards with him. He always wanted to continue to play until he won the most games. One of Joel's teammates said, "'Losing at pool once threw him into a rage "'and he snapped the cue stick in two. "'But that side of Ivren only seemed to come out "'when he was losing, when he was doing well, he was happy, charming, and pleasant to be around. That was the side of him Joel saw at first. Joel was swept away by Ivrin's ambition, impressive background, and generosity. He could be so romantic, she bragged to friends about the surprise Ivrin gave her for their two-year anniversary. He rented a private yacht, and the pair sailed around the Gulf Coast. It was like something out of a dream. But by then, Joelle had also begun to see Ivren's flaws. She admitted to friends that their relationship didn't always run smoothly. They both had strong personalities and they frequently butted heads. Ivren could be controlling and possessive of Joelle. He viewed anyone who monopolized her time as a threat, including her friends and teammates. He told Joelle that it drove him crazy when she spent time with others. When Joelle performed well in basketball games, instead of praising her, he grew petulant. He didn't want to compete with a sport for her time and was perhaps even jealous of her accomplishments. He may have liked the status symbol of having a high achieving girlfriend, but he didn't want anybody to think she was more successful than him. At first, Joelle was almost flattered by Ivren's behavior. If he was jealous, it only meant that he cared about her. But after they'd been dating a few years, she grew tired of his temper. Throughout the spring and summer of Ivren's senior year, they regularly fought, broke up, and got back together again. When Ivren graduated from Northeast Louisiana University in 1986, it seemed like a natural ending point for their relationship. 21-year-old Joelle would be staying at NLU to finish her senior year, while Ivren was planning to move to New Orleans to attend medical school at LSU. But in the meantime, during the summer between college and medical school, while Joelle stayed on campus and took classes, Ivren lived at Joelle's mother's house. Joelle didn't want to go through the effort of explaining to her family that the relationship wasn't working. It just seemed easier not to rock the boat. 
Soon enough, Ivrin would move to New Orleans and she could move on. Joelle walked across campus in a daze. She should have been studying. The whole point of taking summer classes was to keep her from falling behind. Instead, she was distracted, constantly replaying the last two years in her mind. She didn't know if she was really in love with Ivren or if she had just been captivated by his brilliance. He was so confident and ambitious, you couldn't help but be swept up by him. But after some time apart, she saw things differently. With Ivren, it all came down to arrogance and entitlement. He wanted Joelle in his life, so he pushed until he made it so, regardless of what she wanted. He wasn't even worried when she tried to break up with him. He was absolutely convinced he could turn on the charm and win her back at any moment. The most infuriating thing was, he was right. He was so determined, he always seemed to get what he wanted. He didn't even know how to lose. He refused to. He was just too manipulative. She hoped things would be different once the school year started and he went to medical school. Maybe then he'd finally go his way and she'd go hers. In September of 1986, 21-year-old Joelle began her senior year at Northeast Louisiana University in Monroe. 22-year-old Ivren moved into an apartment in New Orleans and began his first year of medical school. With 300 miles of distance between them, their relationship reached a state of limbo. At some point, Ivren gave her an engagement ring, but Joelle didn't wear it and she didn't call him her fiance. Still, she didn't say they were broken up either. Joelle still wasn't sure what she wanted. Even Ivren's success and wealth couldn't be worth putting up with his jealous, controlling behavior. Then, as the new school year started, Joelle finally made a friend who she could vent her feelings to, an 18-year-old first-year student named Brenda Spicer. In the fall of 1986, Brenda joined the university's basketball team as a freshman. When she arrived, she made an instant connection with Joelle. At that point, Brenda didn't know anything about Joelle's long-distance, on-again, off-again boyfriend. But that would soon change. And it wouldn't be long before she'd see the violent side of Ivren's temper. Up next, Ivren struggles to hold on to Joelle and becomes increasingly threatened by her friendship with Brenda Spicer. Now... Back to the story. In the fall of 1986, 22-year-old Ivan Bolden Jr. had just begun his first year of medical school at Louisiana State University. It was a stressful time for him. He'd always been a straight-A student, but the rigorous coursework in medical school was different. For the first time in his life, he struggled to keep up academically. Making matters worse, he was stressed about his relationship with his girlfriend, 21-year-old Joelle Tillis. Joelle, a senior at NLU, was ambivalent about Ivren. 
She liked the idea of being with a successful, accomplished future doctor. However, she was less pleased with the reality of being with a controlling, possessive man like Ivrin. Joelle used her new friend, 18-year-old Brenda Spicer, as an outlet to express her frustrations. In turn, Joelle became the supportive mentor Brenda desperately needed as she adjusted to college life. Brenda had a lot to get used to. She'd grown up in an affluent white family in Gina, Louisiana, a small town 65 miles south of Monroe. She was a bright, vivacious, and politically engaged student, but she was most known for being a star player on her high school basketball team. When Brenda was 15 years old, she suffered a brutal tragedy. At a high school football game, one or more students followed her into the bathroom behind the bleachers and violently sexually assaulted her. She reportedly couldn't name her perpetrators and no charges were brought. The attack left Brenda shaken, but she refused to let it interfere with her future goals. When she graduated high school in 1986, she followed her dreams to play for Northeast Louisiana University. When she arrived on campus, she moved into the student-athlete housing. Brenda enjoyed the arrangement. It brought her closer to her teammates, especially Joelle Tillis. She raved about Joelle to her parents, saying the senior was like a big sister to her. Their relationship marked a promising start to Brenda's new college life. But in her first practice, Brenda aggravated an old knee injury and needed surgery to correct the damage. She was devastated to be out of commission before her season even began. She leaned on Joelle for support. The two young women soon became close confidants. That fall, Joelle was still half-heartedly dating Ivan Bolton Jr., but they only saw each other occasional weekends when he would come up from New Orleans rent a hotel room and whisk her away for a tryst. He couldn't afford to take much time away from school. Despite his best efforts, he was at risk of failing several of his med school courses. His future plans for success seemed to be slipping away from him. He refused to let Joelle slip away too. Distance did nothing to lessen Ivan's possessiveness. He still resented any intrusion on their relationship. He quickly noticed how close Joelle and Brenda became. They seemed to spend all their free time together and Ivrin didn't like it. He told Joelle to spend less time with her teammate. This request raised a red flag. Domestic violence advocate Pamela Jacobs has described the typical abuser as someone who will want you all to himself. He'll make you guilty for spending time with friends or family he will call or text you several times a day and may accuse you of flirting or cheating. He will say he loves you so much, he can't stand the thought of anyone else being near you. This is the beginning of isolation. But Joelle wouldn't let herself be isolated. She brushed off Ivan's complaints. Whenever he started an argument about it, she countered that she wouldn't abandon her best friend while she was going through a crisis. Ivan began taking his grievances directly to Brenda. If Brenda tried to hang out with them while he was visiting, 
Ivrid hinted that she was not welcome. Brenda got the message. She told her family that Joelle's boyfriend didn't like her. The feeling seemed to be mutual. In November, the women's basketball team played a game in Gulfport, and Ivrin showed up to watch Joelle play. At one point, a player on the other team slammed into Joelle, knocking the wind out of her. Brenda, watching from the bench, was outraged to see that Ivrin didn't seem concerned about Joelle. In fact, he laughed and yelled, suck it up. Brenda began asking Joelle why she was with Ivrin at all. Joelle replied that she sometimes wondered that herself. The more Joelle and Ivrin argued, the closer Joelle got to Brenda, making Ivrin furious. He repeatedly hurled slurs at them, accusing them of engaging in a love affair together. And he wasn't the only one who disapproved. Joelle and Brenda's teammates also noticed how close the two women became. They sometimes even strolled campus holding hands. It was enough to spark gossip that Joelle and Brenda were romantically involved. This prospect worried their coaches. The team had recently weathered a scandal after rumors surfaced about an inappropriate relationship between a female coach and player. The NCAA had issued penalties and put the university on probation the year before in 1985. School officials were quick to clamp down on any behavior that they deemed improper. Apparently, that included a same-sex romance. The coaches reportedly sat Brenda and Joelle down for several meetings in which they discouraged the pair from spending so much time together. Ivren, after learning about the coach's involvement, was pleased that he had allies in his fight to separate Brenda and Joelle. He even called one of the coaches personally and asked her for help in winning back his girlfriend. The coach later said, I didn't know what he was talking about or what he thought I could do. Joelle and Brenda tried their best to ignore the people meddling into their friendship. The more others tried to keep them apart, the more defiant the two women became. Brenda even talked about leaving school and following Joelle wherever she went after graduation. Her dream of playing basketball for NLU had soured. Her friendship with Joelle was more important. Joelle seemed to feel the same allegiance to Brenda. In December, she invited Brenda to spend winter break at her family's home. She also invited Ivren. Predictably, the vacation was a disaster. The minute Ivren saw Brenda, he exploded, demanding to know why she was there. Joel's family took his side. They didn't know the details, but they had known Ivren for longer and trusted him. Brenda felt uncomfortable and left before Christmas. Back home, her misfortune seemed to multiply. While playing softball with cousins, she re-injured her knee undoing months of physical therapy. Once winter break ended, when Brenda returned to school, she found that Joelle was acting distant. It's possible she'd taken Ivrand and her coach's objections to heart. Brenda was overwhelmed by the prospect of losing her spot on the basketball team, disappointing everyone and now losing Joelle. Early that winter, 
she tried to overdose on some over-the-counter medication. Her teammates called their coaches, who rushed Brenda to the hospital to have her stomach pumped. The doctors treating her took the suicide attempt seriously. They wanted to admit her into the psychiatric unit. Brenda objected, promising that she no longer felt suicidal. Her doctor evidently relented when she vowed to attend counseling at school. She was released later that night. Brenda's depressed behavior didn't elicit much sympathy from her coaches. Instead of offering more support, they officially kicked her off the basketball team. Brenda felt lost and alone. So far, college had been a disaster. She needed to step away. On February 10th, 1987, she decided to withdraw from the university entirely and move back home. For Ivren, it was a victory. He may have wanted to show that he was a gracious winner. After Brenda left NLU, he sent her a letter. He wrote, I hope you are feeling all right now, and I want to apologize for the way I have treated you lately. I am trying very hard learning to share Joel with someone else, and I am asking you to bear with me in my efforts. He added, I hope we can both work together in sharing Joel Tillis. Ivan seemed to know all the right words to say, but sharing didn't come easily to him, and Brenda knew it. She didn't buy that he'd reformed. She viewed his letter not as an apology, but a threat. Early that spring, she reportedly received a slew of prank phone calls. The person on the other end wouldn't say anything. He only breathed heavily into the phone. Brenda strongly suspected the calls were from Ivren. She was so worried, she even started keeping a handgun in the glove compartment of her car. She told Joelle about the calls, who then confronted Ivren. Ivren denied responsibility. For her part, Joelle didn't know what to believe, but she was exhausted by the drama. Joelle sat at her desk, staring at her textbook. She tried to concentrate on her work, but she couldn't focus. She felt like life was pulling her in all directions. She was tired of trying to keep everyone happy. Now, Brenda was scared. Ivren was furious. Her coaches were disappointed and her teammates were sick of hearing about it all. Most days, she couldn't wait to move past this phase of life. Maybe once she graduated, she'd find some clarity. But she worried that when she left school, she'd only find more complications. Ivren would expect her to move to New Orleans with him and get married. She'd finally have to make a choice once and for all. She wished she didn't have to think about any of it. Part of her wished that someone else would make the choice for her. Her worries followed her as the demands of the basketball season grew more intense. On Thursday, March 5th, the NLU women's basketball team was scheduled to play in their final match before the start of the NCAA tournament. Joelle was a graduating senior. This would be the last regular season game of her student career. Her best friend, Brenda Spicer, wanted to be at the game to show her support. Ivern, too, planned to be there. A conflict between the two seemed inevitable. 
but Brenda had no way of knowing that the encounter would turn deadly. Coming up, Ivren confronts Brenda about her relationship with Joelle for the last time. Now, back to the story. In 1986, 18-year-old Northeast Louisiana University student Brenda Spicer was trying to recover from a rough start to college life. She'd hoped to become a star player on the women's basketball team, but was quickly sidelined due to an injury. Meanwhile, her close friendship with her teammate, 22-year-old Joelle Tillis, was threatened by the jealous behavior of Joelle's boyfriend, 23-year-old Ivan Bolden Jr. But Brenda wouldn't let her problems prevent her from supporting her former teammates in the last game of the season. She drove to NLU on Wednesday, March 4th, to cheer them on. She planned to spend the weekend on campus, staying in Joelle's dormitory suite. The next day, Ivan drove from New Orleans to Monroe to watch the game. It would mean more than nine hours of driving, but for him, it was worth it to see Joelle. Unfortunately, Joelle was dreading Ivan's arrival. In fact, according to her friends, she was discussing breaking up with him that day. Brenda encouraged her. They talked it out as Brenda drove her to a midday basketball warm-up before the game. Ivan showed up while they were at practice. Joel greeted him warmly to avoid making a scene. After practice, he asked to swing by a storage warehouse where they rented a unit together. He said he wanted to borrow her bicycle to take back with him to New Orleans. After they'd retrieved the bicycle, Joel and Ivan went out for ice cream. Ivan was upset when Brenda suddenly showed up to sit with them. Over ice cream, the two confronted Ivan about how he'd driven them apart. They blamed him for the rumors that swirled about them. After all, Ivan was the one who first accused them of being in a lesbian relationship. Ivan, in turn, blamed Brenda for turning Joelle against him. He thought they were happily engaged until Brenda showed up. After an intense argument, Joelle made it clear that she no longer wanted to see Ivan anymore. He was furious. It seemed Joelle had picked Brenda over him after all. Though she might not have known it, this was an incredibly perilous time for Joelle. According to Wendy Mahoney, executive director for the Mississippi Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the most dangerous time for a woman in a potentially abusive relationship is the point at which she decides to leave. She stated, domestic violence is all about power and control. And when a woman leaves, a man has lost his power and control. But in the moment, Ivan hid most of his fury from the women. He quickly calmed down and told them he just needed time to move on. Eventually, he said, he was sure they would all be friends. The three then returned to the dormitory. Ivan bitterly watched television in the first floor lounge. Upstairs in the suite, Brenda helped Joelle get ready for the game. As they got ready, Ivan dialed up to the room. When Brenda answered, he apologized. He asked her to meet him before the game. 
He claimed that he had a present for Joelle at the storage warehouse. He wanted to give it to Brenda so she could slip it in Joelle's locker. Brenda agreed to meet with him after she dropped Joelle off at Ewing Coliseum for pregame interviews. When they got to the Coliseum, Brenda told Joelle she was going to see Ivren to pick up the gift. Joelle handed Brenda her camera and asked her to pass it on to Ivren. She wanted him to take pictures of the game. Brenda agreed and drove off. Just before 6 p.m., Brenda met Ivren at the warehouse. They talked for a while in front of the units. The owner of a service station across the street saw them having the discussion. He later said the couple stood out to him. He admitted that an interracial couple was something you notice in a town that size. After they talked for a while, Ivren and Brenda disappeared into the storage unit. Ivren later said he just wanted to talk to her in private to plead with her one last time to back off so that he could have Joelle to himself. But Brenda wouldn't let anyone bully her out of the friendship and she told Ivren so. Hearing this, Ivren snapped. He lunged at Brenda, closing his hands around her throat crushing the bones in her neck. Evidence later indicated that he raped and sodomized her, although it is not clear whether he did so before or after killing her. Afterward, he left Brenda on the floor of the storage unit. He had no time to hide the body. The game was starting in minutes. Ivan raced back to the dormitory where he met up with Joelle's mother. Marlis Bates, and her younger sister. Then, he accompanied them to the basketball game. At the Coliseum, Joelle and her teammates noticed Brenda's absence. Joelle had expected her to return to the locker room after meeting with Ivren, but she never showed. As the game started, the team filed out onto the court to play against Mississippi College. Joelle scanned the crowds, but saw no sign of Brenda. Instead, she was annoyed to see Ivren snapping pictures with the camera Joelle had handed to Brenda. She knew they must have seen each other before the game. She wondered why Ivren was there and Brenda wasn't. Joelle tried to keep her focus on the game, but her mind kept wandering. She cursed herself as she took a shot and missed. The ball sailed past the basket and into the hands of the opposing team's forward. She snuck a look at Ivren to see his reaction. He was on his feet, shouting. She couldn't hear what he was saying, but she felt her cheeks burn with humiliation. He always seemed to make a scene when she failed. He never let these kinds of things slide. She thought she was done with that with him, and yet, here he was again. She searched the crowd again for Brenda, a more supportive face, but her friend still hadn't turned up. Worry nagged at Joelle along with a hint of anger. She assumed Ivren had chased Brenda away, and now he was sitting right next to her mother as if nothing had changed. As if she hadn't just broken up with him hours before, 
as if he were still just a part of the family. It was like he was saying that no matter what Joel did or said, he wasn't going anywhere. Throughout the game, Ivrin was an animated and vocal spectator, as if he wanted to be noticed. Then, six minutes before halftime, he abruptly disappeared. More than one student witnessed him sprinting away from the Coliseum at top speed. As he left the game, he only had one thing on his mind, getting Brenda's body out of his storage unit before anybody noticed her. He got into his car and sped to the warehouse. There, he grabbed Brenda's body and buckled it into the passenger seat. He drove her to the campus science building and dropped the body in a dumpster. He then stripped off his clothes and changed into a spare set he kept in the back seat. Afterward, he was worried about driving his own car back to the game. He thought there might be bloodstains or other visible evidence on the seats, but since he'd purchased Joelle's car for her, he had a spare set of keys. He retrieved her car instead and drove it back to the game. As he raced back to the stands, some spectators noticed that he'd switched outfits. They found it strange that someone would take the time to change at halftime. Ivrin took his seat beside Joel's mother and watched the rest of the game as if nothing had happened. The game concluded with an NLU win. They beat Mississippi College 88-58. to But for Joel, the celebration was mixed with dread. The game was over, and Brenda still hadn't come back. Ivrin, who'd always been anxious to see as much of Joel as possible, now seemed in a rush to leave. He congratulated Joel, then left to make the long drive back to New Orleans. Joel's mother and sister departed around the same time. With them gone, Joel could finally focus on finding her friend. She set to knocking on all the doors in the dormitory in search of Brenda. One of the teammates suggested going to the coaches to report Brenda missing. They noticed that Joel seemed reluctant to do so, but eventually she relented. The coaches didn't seem very concerned about her disappearance. It had only been a few hours. They assumed Brenda might have gone out with friends or driven back home. Only Brenda's former teammates seemed to sense something horrible had happened. They knew that Brenda would never have missed their last game unless something or someone had stopped her. Frantic, Joelle called and left a message for Ivren, the last person to see Brenda. He got back to his New Orleans apartment at around 1 a.m., and immediately returned her call. Joelle told him that Brenda had gone missing and that nobody had seen her since she met up with Ivren to retrieve Joelle's gift at the storage warehouse. Ivren played dumb. He said he had never met up with Brenda. He didn't know anything about a gift. Joelle knew he was lying. He must have met up with Brenda because he'd gotten Joelle's camera from her at some point before the game. Ivrin then changed his story. He said he had seen Brenda only in passing. She'd handed over the camera when he passed her by the student recreation center. Joelle didn't know whether to believe him. She didn't know what it all meant. 
but she knew something terrible had happened to Brenda Spicer. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the story. We'll talk about the murder case that went awry following the death of Brenda Spicer. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.